This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. There's such big stuff this week that James Carville and I have to do it alone. So uh, you guys just stick with us, will you? Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Puticon for next week's show. Now we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, Miracle Made, and Lomi in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors because it really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, I keep thinking... The 2024 presidential contest will start to look better, or at least a little bit less dark. I'm I'm still waiting. No poll these days is a shocker after so many, but the Wall Street Journal survey last month, in some ways, or excuse me, last weekend, seemed even worse. Uh, Biden was behind by, I think, four in a two-way race and six in a multi-candidate field. That's not especially new, but more worrisome, almost twice as many voters think they did better economically under Trump than they have under Biden. Now, that's demonstrably untrue, but it doesn't matter what I think. It's what voters think. And another survey showed black voters, among black voters, 17% were going to vote for Trump, double what it was in 2020. The intensity of the Jewish-Palestinian issue in this country, especially among young voters, cost Biden, as he did well with both. So, James, a very simple request. Walk me off this cliff. So, Al, as you know and well aware, well documented on this show, I have been highly skeptical of the idea of President Biden running for election. And to be fair to you, my partner and co-host, you have shared that, that same skepticism that I have. I have to tell you that I think during the last half of this year, the cowardness in the Democratic consultant community, elected official community, Democratic influencer, influential people has been so evident, it, 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 it's staggering. It's breathtaking. So now I'm hearing, well, you might have been right in June, but there's nothing we can do about it. Okay, I profoundly disagree. But in, to be fair, in, in, in the access crowd, the, the, the crowd that, you know, just sits back and won't say a thing. And I'll say, well, the economic numbers are starting to dig a little deeper and there's some, you know, we're starting to see some income growth and, you know, we're going to see some lower prices. And if you just wait, it, it, it could turn out well. Okay, <laughs> maybe. And that assumes that all of the concerns about President Biden are economic, which is 
to me, a pretty big leap to make. But I, I got to tell you, Albert, the excuses that people use to put what is their own self-interest against the interests of the country, and I want to be very clear here, that is happening over and over again. We, we're, we're risking the long-term future of the United States, and believe me, I'm not exaggerating. It'll be the end of the Constitution, but we can't say anything because maybe I won't have the access that I had before. And look, the White House plays very hard with, with these people. You know, they'll cut you off in a second. Everybody knows that. But I just have to say, I think when this is all said and done, there's been a massive failure of what I call it, what you call it, establishment elite or high end. Or I don't know about stupid words. I know how to describe it, but in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, if you ask me to have one word to describe it, it would be cowardness. Yeah. No, it's hard to take issue with that. You know, I find even, to me, uh, I am even more confounded by Trump's continuing strength, at least vis-a-vis Biden. I think other Democrats could beat him. Uh, but, I, you know, I'll write off 36% of die-in-the-wool Republicans, racists, and some with, with legitimate grievances. Uh, but Today, after all the sins he committed as president, 91 charges, four indictments, top officials saying he'd be dangerous to the country, he's up at 45. And I I don't know, James, is there anything that can stop him, criminal conviction or something that would turn it around? Because uh, that worries me. The case is going to the Supreme Court about his claim that he's above the law and all the precedent is in favor of of Jack Smith, the special prosecutor. But with this court, you can't bet on that. You cannot, you know, I, I've, I've seen legal people where they know more than I do, but I don't know how much that, how much they know about it. Some people think the Supreme Court will, will not go along with, with, with Trump on this. I, I don't know, but I, I think there's stuff piling up. And, you know, a lot it's going to depend on Iowa and New Hampshire. If they don't make some kind of breakthrough, which I have to confess is increasingly problematic. This is a conversation that has gone on in political consultant shit since I can remember. Is What is the base Democratic? There are two numbers in the Wall Street Journal poll that, that jumped out at me. First, in a multi-candidate field, an incumbent Democratic president gets 31. Yeah. I can't begin to tell you that what that is. There is no historical precedent under any trial heat vote that just with the Democratic label, in addition to being a term president, in addition, in my opinion, has done a stellar job with work, you know, helping every part of the base, particularly black voters. And the numbers are continue to be abysmal. 31. There was another thing that grabbed me, and when you look at polls as long as I have, you're always looking for something to say, well, maybe the, the people that did it were kind of asleep, they weren't paying attention, they just came in with a view, and just everything that fit that view, they would answer it. So in the, the head-to-head with Trump, which it will not be a head-to-head on Election Day, but it, let's, let, let's do that right. because that's the headline number. Uh, I think Biden was down six. He was down four, was I four. think, in the in the head to head, and down six in the head, head, head. Down down four in the head to head. Okay, Ron DeSantis and Biden were forty five, forty five. So that tells you that 
the respondent is hearing things, correct? It does. Nikki Haley versus Biden. Now, this doesn't even seem possible. Is 51 to 36, 17 points. Maybe it was 34. I think it was 34. 17 points. I think it was. Even with one, minus four with another, minus 17 with another. If that doesn't convince you that these respondents were paying attention to the questions that they were being asked, then there's nothing I can do to convince you. But that was, to me, the most breathtaking, instructive number in the entire poll. So in a multi-candidate field, the incumbent Democrat gets 31. In a head-to-head, you get 34. Somebody please tell me how these are not disastrous numbers. Please tell me. I want to know. I want to get off of this. I want to fall in line. I want to be part of the team. But I, I, did, no one can give me any reason to do it other than, well, the hell is too late. What chicken shit, people. Good God. Save oh, me. James, I'm still on that cliff. I haven't gone. I even taken a step further. You know, the Supreme Court is going to hear Jack Smith's appeal. Uh, Trump is basically claiming he's above the law. I mean, you know, law doesn't matter. And the court's going to hear another case in addition to this one, which was brought that says, can the government charge defendants um, uh, uh, with a law that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official congressional proceeding? If they go the way they might go on that and side with the the Republicans, uh, that's going to jeopardize a number of cases, maybe including Trump's. You know, our friend Walter Dellinger used to say, you know, this court, you got to understand, it's a Republican. It's a conservative court. It's not a Trump court. So he wasn't surprised back in 21 when they sided with the Manhattan DA or 20, and they sided with Congress and turning over records. That, that's because yesterday, to these Republican justices, Trump was yesterday. Now he's today, tomorrow. And I think that, um, I think this case... The Jack Smith case should be easy. I think the obstruction charge case should be easy. With this court, nothing is easy, James. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, nobody has, can, yeah, my respect for Walters is, is deep and profound, but I, I, I did have to point out he didn't think that Dobbs would overturn Roe, but just one vote. But Okay, you know, yeah. understand that, but most questions before the court he he's probably and things i've heard him call he's 14 for 15 he, i wish he were still around because he'd be you know right 25 for 26 now yeah. oh god is that for every from on every front not just the legal front on sports on culture yeah on politics on i mean the guy was a like a polymath like no other i have ever known uh, and I, I can't spend enough time talking about about Walter, but uh, I I don't you know I can't I can't guess what they're gonna do, uh, but you know they're taking up a lot of different cases. You know, look at this. We should talk about this New York redistricting. They're gonna have to go through intellectual contusions. Uh, oh, I don't think the high court down, will, will, but, will do that, James. They've been very loath to strike down redistrictings, mainly because it's helped Republicans. I, I, I agree, but you know, that's going to cost the Republicans a shitload. Just of as North Carolina costs the Democrats <laughs> yeah. a shitload. And right, and they can, 
they can do a lot of they can get do a lot of intellectual pretzels. I I, I would tend to think that they won't because they've been so adamant about this. Uh, but I don't know, and I tend to, I, I I don't think that they really like Trump. I, I think that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett at some level are embarrassed by it, that they're forever associated with being put on the court by Trump. But that's that's just my thought. Maybe I'm projecting my values on theirs. James, um, you know that I turn to you sometimes to fill in my gaps, but I have to say you really let me down a few weeks ago when I asked you on what grounds are the House Republicans trying to impeach Joe Biden? They're closer now, but have you found that elusive evidence or basis for that impeachment? <laughs> I got, I it's got to be somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I got like Sherlock Holmes with, you know, some weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And and I tell you, the the guy who I listened to on this, it's a radio show by the name of Dan Abrams. He's a legal analyst from ABC. He is not not a left winger at all. Not at all. And he, he just has repeatedly said, I don't see any evidence at all connecting Joe Biden to any of this. I'll, please help me. And so I just, I, I try to tune in to Dan just to see if there's something new because he, he keeps looking for it. And he says, look, I'm happy to, to admit that I'm wrong. And, and of course, this thing they had uh, with with Hunter showing up to testify in coma in Jim Jordan, I, I just keep repeating this and you know, said it early and sometimes people like to brag and say, you see, I told you so. Well, you see, I told you so. They're not very smart people. They're really not very smart people. And how, why does the Republican Party, why didn't somebody say, can, what are we going to do about this shit show we have of these congressional committees? We, we keep promising our voters something and we never deliver. It, it, you know, and I'm sorry, if it was a Democrat, if it, the roles were reversed. The criticism would of the, among Democrats would be bitter and mad. Like, what are you people doing? What are we sending you from Washington for to sit there and just make fools of yourself and fools of us? I, I don't. I, I don't think this is. But on the other hand, that we would the Democrats would act the same way for this kind of stupidity that the Republicans react to stupidity. Well, whether you're, you're absolutely right. Whether you agree or disagree on the whole process of impeachment, the Democrats in each case had a very strong case. I mean, basically with Ukraine, he tried to, Trump tried to shake down a foreign government to deliver dirt on his opponent. Now, you may decide presidents can do anything and that's not impeachable, but certainly that you can make a strong case that it is. And certainly you can make a strong case that inciting the January 6th Riot was a, was a was an impeachable offense. Again, whether you agree with it or not, they, there ain't nothing here. I mean, there's blue smoke and mirrors, and I'm not even sure you got the blue smoke. Well, every chin scratcher says you got to realize impeachment is a political process. 
I mean, that, that's always the first thing that comes out. It's not a judicial process. All right, that's a political process. But why, why are you not offended? It, and let's assume, just for the, for, what is the word to use in law school? Arguendo or something? It's always some kind of fucking Latin word. For You're for our law school argument, graduate. That it's all political. It's all political. Okay, well, the political buffoonery on their side is breathtaking. I mean, all right, if you're going to play politics, I, I think the Democrats play, I, I disagree, but you can say, okay, I think the Democrats play politics by, by imagine taking offense of holding up a congressionally mandated spending in order uh, to dig up dirt on your opponent. It seems to me to be, you know, a, a inciting a, a insurrection on the United States Capitol. Okay, that, I'm kind of, but, but maybe you say that's all political. They can't even play the political part. If I, if I just gave them every point, you're still idiots. Why do you why do you tolerate this incompetence and tomfoolery? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I'd love to get one. I, I think you're not getting it because it's not there, James. Let, let me turn yeah, to another <laughs> congressional event this week: the hearings on anti-Semitism, supposedly at Harvard University of Pennsylvania and MIT. They were, in the vernacular, a shit show. Uh, first, the Ivy League leaders might have been well prepared for a courtroom. They were not prepared for a political gunfight, and they blew it when they replied genocide had to be taken in context. No, it really does not. If they had been prepared, not just by good lawyers, but by people like Phil Shalero, the best congressional investigator I've ever known, Stephanie Cutter, Jennifer, Jennifer Palmari, experts in political communications, they would have known what was coming. They would have perhaps been prepared. It came mainly from a New York congresswoman, Elise Stefanik, who, A, is smart. B, is totally unprincipled. In 2019, she switched from the leader of the moderate Republicans in the House to become a fanatical MAGA Trump supporter and has stayed there because that's the way she sees the winds blowing in her party. And C, she's out for blood against Harvard, which in 2021 kicked her off an advisory board for lying. No, I think if you're on an advisory board or an academic institution and you're lying, you ought to be kicked off. But the lesson here, and I think those presidents did a horrible job, is the next time you're in a knife fight, bring a knife. Well, I, I, I have to say this, that according to news reports and according to independent research, the, the chief lawyer for the Penn and Harvard presidents was a woman named Alyssa DeCuna. You can look her up. She's a big-time lawyer at a big-time law firm called Wilma Hale, which is a big-time law firm. And they rejected political advice. This I know. In fact, one of the people that you mentioned had, like, offered it. And uh, I, I am not convinced that this whole thing was not a trap set up by the lawyers for Harvard and Penn. And, you know, there, there are plenty of answers, I, I, which, you know, is really funny as a mutual friend of ours in Sunset asked the head of Hillel, which is the Jewish student community, that they're all over. There's one big one at Tulane. Every university has that. And said, they don't, when they say the river to the sea, they don't even know what river they're talking about. It's just some sloganeering that some idiotic 19-year-olds would yell in colonialism and not knowing anything about it. I mean, these are 
kids that can take a standardized test. And, and honestly, not much ability to think beyond that. And it, but the, the fact that these university leaders got up there and were so politically bouffonic, is that a word? It, it, it sounds like well, it, because they certainly were that. It sounds yeah. like it should you be. If it's not a word, you can do that, and it, it. And it fits. I, 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 I it, it, you know, it, it's a trap that they, they walked into an ambush. I don't think it was even coordination with Democratic members of the committee or Democratic staff. I didn't see any preparation that there was a kind of space that you went back to. Uh, I, I didn't see any of that. I don't, there's no evidence, as, as anybody sane would do, you'd set up a mock committee room, you would have lawyers, you would have political operatives, you'd have like Phil Shalero, you'd have people that had run congressional committees and say, okay, this is a picture, this is Elise Stefani, this is where she's going, who she is, this is where she's going to be coming from, all right? And you can, if you want to, you can sidetrack about pointing out that Harvard fired her for lying. They didn't do any of that. Well, what was this Miss DeCuno? What the hell was she doing? Was she in the immortal words of Brendan Sullivan, a potted plant? There's every evidence that the attorney was a potted plant, to be honest with you. Well, I think the effect of this, James, Liz McGill at Penn was forced to resign. The president of Harvard got a a reprieve. I'll tell you what bothers me, James, um, and I think those presidents really, as you said, I've, what's that word you used? Whatever it was, it applies. Uh, and, and they and they did it. Buffonic. Buffonic. Um, but what bothers me is driving those decisions to try to oust those presidents were self-styled arbiters of moral righteousness who are rich, hedge fund, private equity, and politicians with a huge dose of hypocrisy. At Harvard, the loudest voice has been hedge fund guy Bill Ackman, who said that the president of Harvard was picked only because of her color. Thanks, Bill. He and his wife were associates of Jeffrey Epstein, the late sexual predator of young girls. At Penn, full disclosure, I teach a course there. Two of the McGill Must Go leaders were private equity billionaire Mark Rowan and former governor and ambassador John Huntsman. Both were Trumpites. Rowan as a big financial donor, Huntsman was a political appointee. Now, they're entitled to their opinion, totally. And I agree, McGill was slow on the uptake, both on Hamas originally, and certainly she she was flummoxed on Capitol Hill. But she's emphatically not an anti-Semite, and I don't think there's any indications that she has any bigotry. Contrast that with Ro Rowan and Huntsman's guy, Trump. Did they demand, did they demand he stepped down after he bragged that women love to be sexually assaulted by him, or when he belittled a person with disabilities or questioned the judicial integrity of a judge just because of his Mexican ancestry or equated demonstrators for taking down Confederate monuments with racist Ku Klux Klan bigots. You know, the Rowans, Huntsmans, and Axmans are associated with these universities, and it's their fault, Penn and Harvard, but they're associated only because they're big contributors. And maybe they have something to offer on the... Uh, investing in the endowment or financing expansions or maybe even the football or rowing teams. But given their associations, why in the hell should we listen to them on issues of moral character or bigotry? So we think of the current state of affairs in the Middle East and we think of all of 
the things that we see. And I want to ask these gentlemen, use the term advisedly, and I would ask our listeners, uh, just anybody, when you look at what's happening in the Middle East, who do you think is mostly to blame? Uh, uh, a 19-year-old snot nose running around yelling the river to the sea in colonialism, or the staggering, breathtaking negligence of the Israeli government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu that we now find was okaying hundreds of millions of dollars of payments directly to Hamas. I will pose the question, and I'll say up front, I don't have any evidence other than gut instinct. I wonder if BB didn't get his cut. All right? I just wonder. I can't imagine just knowing his background and his ethics, that there were hundreds of millions of dollars being funded to, to somewhere right on the southern border where, where, where he didn't get his cut. But i, I be very clear, it's a supposition I have. But but Mr. Agaman and them, you, you, you keep on blaming the, these 19-year-olds and please and keep defending Bibi Netanyahu and the massive greed and incompetence of, of his government, and that, and for God's sakes, don't blame him. Blame the snot-nosed 19-year-old who has not even had a, a fully formed a political opinion. Or blame the president of Penn because she was incompetently prepped and gave a constipated testimony. But who, who are these people? What is wrong with people? Why can't they see right under their own noses what's going on. I, 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 I was like, I just give me their side of, of what they're saying. And, you know, now, of course, it took them eight hours to respond. It took us three minutes to respond. And I, I said something, and I want to correct this, that the failure of Israel intelligence on October 7th you know, was the biggest intelligence failure we had since 9-11. Actually, this was a much bigger intelligence failure than 9-11. 9-11 was colossal intelligence failure. Colossal. I mean, August 6th memo, you can't imagine. This, the intelligence was much, much deeper. The payments, I, I mean, I, to my knowledge, you weren't authorizing direct payments to Al-Qaeda in, you know, June uh, uh, of 2021, no, no, no. I guess two, it was. 2001. I, I, 2001. So I, I, yeah. it's worked. 2000, yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah. We were younger then. Some, uh, somebody, Bill Barr, asked somebody, if you bought it in 2021, <laughs> how old would you be? He said 21. <laughs> you know, I want to tell our listeners out there, too, I so think James's criticism of Netanyahu uh, is absolutely on the mark. And James Carville has credentials. He has run political campaigns in Israel. Uh, so he knows the country. He knows the people. He's close to a number uh, over there. And I just think uh, your criticism is right on the mark. Uh, and I'm waiting for Mr. Rowan and Mr. A Ackerman uh, to comment on uh, on Bibi Netanyahu. I don't think we're going to hear it, James. All right. Well, thank you. I know you. one thing anybody that listens to the show, we, we don't mind disagreeing with each we other. We don't on this one. Okay. We're in agreement. <laughs> No, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, once you get off sports, they're not very many. They're occasional, but not very many. 
but uh, we'll we'll try to find more. All right, guys. Uh, next week, uh, you know, we'll we we got a big show. I'm gonna not I'm not gonna tell you it now. We'll tease you later, but uh, we we'll have a big show next week. for the outrage of the week. James, you know, I, I really do understand that when employers facing slipping sales and profit sometimes find it necessary to let workers go. I hope they, you know, always, always do it with compassion. And I understand when executives add value for employers, communities, and shareholders, they should be well compensated. However, there is no justification for corporate CEOs making 344 times that of average worker pay. That's 17 times greater than it was in 1965. But what's really the most outrageous is when these two realities converge. Companies like Alphabet, Uber, Salesforce, Microsoft, all laid off workers last year while giving raises to the already astronomical compensation of their top executives much at taxpayers' expense. This is Robin Hood in reverse and a lousy message over the holiday season. So, it's, it's how, if you can imagine, have taken out, sometimes I outrage, find something that I get really outraged about. I'm generally kind of conscious of it for the week leading up to the show. And some outrages are like everything else. There's gradations of outrages. Some of them we do. Today's the one you did was, was an excellent point. And sometimes, be frank, we'll, I, I mail it in every now and then. This outrage is so profoundly affected me, and I'm going to take a little time Good. to share it with you. It has to do with Mike Johnson. It, it, Mike Johnson is always telling us about how holy he is in Ten Commandments. Of course, I demonstrated beyond any chat of a doubt that he violated the Ninth Commandment uh, when he bore false witness against me, when he tweeted out publicly that I'd said Christianity was a greater threat to the United States than Al-Qaeda. Of course, I never said anything. Of course, I've never heard from him because, frankly, I, I think he's a human piece of shit. But I thought that. I now know it. I, I want to refer you to The Guardian, which is very, very well done. It's got a London, but it's got a huge following here in the United States, and it's a very high standard of journalism. As we know, Mike Johnson uses his teenage daughter and son as props for his war on women. I think it's putrid. I think it's disgusting. I think you, you, you're bringing great harm to your own children, uh, you say that you, your wife had a pastoral counseling business. I've never heard. I'm sure she was uh, trying to counsel people, uh, anti-gay conversion therapy and anti-masturbation therapy and all the stupid shit that they try to do. But one thing that Mike Johnson also uses his dad as a prop, Patrick Johnson, and it talked about him very movingly as he accepted the speakership. Patrick Johnson was a Shreveport firefighter. Now, bear with me a second here, because in the law of labor, in the law of liberal Louisiana, all 150 of us, it was a legendary labor leader who was, I'm sure people would say, was the most effective Southern labor leader, uh, 
when he was there, named a man by the name of Vic Busey. He was well known around the country, and Vic was a Shreveport firefighter. And Pat in there is an ammunition dump. I, 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 I get so upset about it, I, I, I literally can't talk about it. In a place called Minden, Louisiana, which is in the 4th Congressional District, and his dad and his wife, Janice, went to Mike Johnson's office to talk about Camp Minden, a military base where illegal munitions dumped. The largest in U.S. history were located. Munitions had spontaneously exploded years before, causing a four-mile blast radius. The pair drove to Mike Johnson's legal office late in the morning. Gabriel will call, and Patrick Johnson explained to his son the immediate environmental and health danger of a toxic dump boat. Farmer know that. They all study that. They know toxic substances left and right. They're well-trained. Right? Not only the residents immediate vicinity, but members of the Johnson family living in the region. His father and I went to him and said, Mike, you need to get involved. This is really important. Your family lives at Ground Zero. Gabriel said, and his family that he uses for his own political gain. Of course, his wife couldn't come to his swearing in the speaker because she had spent so much time on her knees. That's what he said. Okay. And I'm praying. I don't, I don't have any doubt that that's what she was doing on her knees, was praying. It and he said he wasn't interested. He had other things to do. He never was interested in environmental things. The couple left deeply disappointed. This is his daddy. His daddy honored our father and mother. All right. Gabriel, 72, has thought about this and failed to appeal Johnson repeatedly in recent years. This is not a good human being by any definition. And I'm never, ever going to give up. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to keep coming after you. I'm going to mock you. I'm going to ridicule you. I'm going to do everything to run your ass out of office. You are a disgrace to the state of Louisiana and to the United States of America. Period. End of story. Carville v. Johnson. I know where my money is. Uh, go at it, James. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 uh, call Alice Starr and ask her how it ended because it's going to end the same way for you. Now for our listener questions from our really, really smart listeners, James. Margie in Colorado Springs probably asked my favorite one. She wonders if it's too late to have James run for president and have Charles Barkley as his vice president. They both tell it like it is. I suspect Charles will want to reverse that ticket, James. Oh, of course. I mean, I would no way that I'd play second fiddle to the round mound of rebound. I, that guy is, I just, he's such a winsome personality, you know. Uh, but I, I appreciate, the, the, appreciate the thought. I, I think I'd know who would win the one-on-one -on -one basketball game. Right. You could challenge him, though. <laughs> no and, you know, he, you could just, right. just stand there. <laughs> I, you know, he said one of the best friends into uh Terry Bradshaw last week, I guess it was, when I was out in California. And, you know, Terry's had a very, very successful post-career uh, in, in, in sports journalism. Charles has had enormously successful. I mean, he's just a great commentator. I actually ran into him at 
some, I don't know, steakhouse at the bar and shot the breeze with him for 40 minutes. And he's just, uh, I love Charles Barkley. He's, he's a real, real sports guy. He's a real engaging guy. Uh, he used to spout some of that goofy anti-tax shit, but I think he told me that Brother Russell gave that, him a little had a Right, little it was when he was on the Axelrod show, and, uh, and Bill Russell said, you know who the hell paid for those, for, you know, that school in Leeds, Alabama, and who paid for all those recreational facilities, Charles? It was taxpayers' money from wealthier taxpayers, so shut up. Charles said, I shut up after that. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't imagine oh, Russell said, tell me to do anything. Exactly. I, do. Oh, I agree. Kent, in Long, we're in Colorado mode today, and in, in Longmont, Colorado, says, I Kent says, I suspect if Democrats promised to keep the Trump tax cuts, many Republicans would happily switch their president presidential votes. What do you think? Ken, I love the fact you're a listener. That is an actively stupid idea on every level. Number one, if you keep the Trump tax cuts, you have deficits that anybody would worry about. It's amazing how much they cost. Secondly, if you think Republicans are going to think that they can, the Democrats can outbid Republicans on tax cuts, Kent, no, won't happen. It's a bad idea. What they ought to do is keep the tax cuts for people making under a certain amount of money, uh, reinstall the child tax credit and do a couple other things and get rid of all those tax cuts and special benefits that went to wealthier taxpayers. That'd be in 2025. Remember the the guy in the, the last hurrah, which I think is one of the three greatest political novels ever written, uh, that agreed with everything that Mayor Skeffington said, and they called him Ditto. Well, Ditto exactly. to what he said. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in a mode of Ditto. We ain't, we're not disagreeing one hour. Hey, James, John in Nashville, Tennessee says, this is a, a non-political question, but darn it, it affects everybody out there. I'm old enough to remember when, when the phone rang, you picked it up. That was the way before cell phones and call waiting. Now I never answer a call without knowing who it is. I suspect most people, especially younger people, do the same. So how does a pollster get a large enough sample set of young people to respond to their poll? That's a, a, a good question. And I was talking to a very highly experienced pollster. You know, I, I think this is an interesting enough question that we should get you know, a good post to own. They don't, they, we used to do random digit dialing. Now you buy voter, the voter file, lists right. and uh, voter files. And uh, you do it from from there and you select, select a sample. They all say this is much better uh, because of this, the changes. And, you know, you, when I remember you kind of 15 years ago and, well, it's got, you know, 25% cell phone, what you would look for, it, or 50% cell phone is now, God knows what. It, it, the, the point is, that it's, it's a very relevant question. And some of the media polls still do this. But, but my suggestion is we, we, we try pretty soon after the first of the year uh, to get, I, you know, of course, I'm associated with Stan Greenberg, and I think he's, he's been doing this since the 70s, he actually has a PhD. From, I don't know, he taught at Harvard and got a PhD from Yale. He taught at Yale and had a PhD from Harvard. I never been able to figure it out. It's all the same shit to me. But we, they're, they're, we, we know 10 people that can take us through the journey of sample drawing and questionnaires. And, and it, 
it's a sufficiently important subject coming into the election year that I, I think it's worth it. I show. do, too. Stan would be one possibility. The other, if we want to do a twofer, is get Ann Selzer on before Iowa. Love to. I'd be glad. Be totally. Job. Everybody do. And yeah, she's they both terrific. are great. She's they're, they're, as they are, are Jim, and they are they're, as they are. But, uh, to be to to be fair, our problem is not talented posters. Our problem is not particularly talented candidates. <laughs> we got a lot of Jim Gerstein, Fred Yang, Jeff Garren, and yeah, the great Peter Hart. Jesus could go, and and there are new people of John oh, Angeloni. Yeah. Uh, but there are new people that are coming up. Uh, Polly, I don't know. They, 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 people that have, have come up and that I, I just been out of the business for so long. But it, 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 it but there ain't nobody we can pick. But we need, we should do this. We should do this because it's something that our listeners are interested in, and we're not. You know, we've been out. You know, you've probably conducted more media polls than any other human being, and. The Wall Street Journal, you originated up Wall Street Journal poll, which remains the kind of gold standard of media polls and Bloomberg polls and Ann Seltzer. And to say that I've looked at polls for a long time, it would be an understatement. Yeah. No, that's a good idea. Uh, but I'm not cur- current. As no, as, as that's as what happens be. when you get older, James. And I know because I'm older than you. No, Jeff me. in New Albany, Ohio says... I assume if Biden were replaced, big assumption, by a younger, more electable candidate, Harris would not be at the top of the ticket and probably be bumped. How can you replace Joe and bump Kamala without exacerbating the voting engagement problem with the young, uh, with the young and people of color? Well, I'll tell you, Jeff, in that hypothetical hypothetical example, if it were to happen, Kamala only would be bumped by the voters. She would get in there, and if if she wins South Carolina and wins uh, Michigan and wins a number of other primaries, she'll be the nominee. If she gets defeated in those primaries, I think yeah, you have a good candidate. I don't think you can say that Kamala was given a raw deal. So I'm less worried about that uh, than I might otherwise be. Well, I was having a conversation with a highly regarded uh, by in, within the profession and very highly regarded by me, who said something utterly stupid to me. And that is, well, if we don't go with Biden and we throw it open, how do you know that we'll nominate some pro-Palestinian candidate? You know, the part, to understand this, the left, the far left, has fielded candidates in the Democratic Party, and they all have something in common. They don't even come close, right? And so this new excuse that we can't get rid of Biden because if you do, you run the risk of 10 students determining the outcome of the process. That is the lamest answer I've ever heard in my life. And to be fair to me, I told the person who told me that what I thought of the idea. I think very highly of this person, but what that that's about the intellectual depth that this thing is getting pro. Sounds more like a James James Comer question, doesn't it? Palestinian. Uh, yeah. We have a question now from Alec in Kennesaw, Georgia. Uh, you know, he's worried about the ever-changing Georgia Congressional Six. But he also wants to know if Democrats have already lost lost the presidential election in that state. Well, they never 
already lost anything. All right. And Georgia is essential and key. Uh, battleground state, you know, shit, we're behind Michigan. All right, which we won by more than, than Georgia, Arizona, or Wisconsin, or, or Pennsylvania, or Nevada. Uh, so right now, yeah, but if we get some kind of excitement, and you know, Georgia's got a slew, <laughs> of, you know, a, a lot of black voters and more coming because Georgia's one of the few states that's got a lot of black in migration. Right. Uh, there's a lot of young voters in Georgia, you know, lots of them in the Atlanta Metroplex. And we're not doing very well with either one. And, uh, you know, right now we're careening toward a disaster. But, you know, you, you can pull a plane out of a deep dive sometimes. Yeah, let's hope. Stephen in Scranton, Pennsylvania asked, let's oh, hypothetically. Lackawanna County, do it well, man. Let's hypothetically <laughs> say Trump wins. What is currently in place that prevents Trump from continuing to be president beyond the standard of four years? Stephen, that doesn't worry me one bit, and I'll tell you why. If he's elected, he'll do so much damn damage in four years that by 2028, uh, we may not even have a, pre a presidential election. People just don't appreciate the damage that Trump can do, especially if he carries a Republican Congress in with him, but even without that. Yeah, his biggest obstacle, is, let's assume that he wins, all right? His biggest obstacle is the actuarial tables. <laughs> okay, that's just what it is. You look at that guy. That is one unhealthy specimen. He doesn't have a particularly impressive family history. He's got terrible lifestyle habits. How fat do you think that guy is right now? I, I don't think he's seen his penis in this century. I really don't. I mean, look at that gut. But that's my view. <laughs> James, I'm going to tell an anecdote. I agree with you. But there was, an, a, congress, there was, a, there was a, uh, a congressman from New Jersey, Eddie Patton, who was about 5'10", weighed about 270 pounds. And he was in the men's room uh, outside the house one time, uh, and he was fumbling. He was having a hard time. And uh, Don Edwards said to him, uh, you know, Eddie, what's wrong? And Eddie said, I can't find it. And Don said, and Don said, that must be hell when you're making love. And he said, no, there's two of us looking for it then. <laughs> so anyway. Oh, my God. You know, next time you see somebody who said, there's, uh, you know, Miss Johnson, she taught me in second grade. She's 90 years old. to go over and tell her hello. And there's old man such and such. And, you know, he was a former policeman. He's 90 years old. You know what I can tell you that neither – these two people have in common, they're not fat. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Donald Trump is <laughs> fat. Also, also, James, yeah. to go uh, to your is, point. No, he's not fat. He's, I, I think he's obese, morbidly obese, maybe. He just lies about yeah. his weight. So it was two, it was like 216. He also, for all the talk about Biden's age, we should not forget the fact that if Trump is elected, he will spend the majority of a term, if he lives, in his 80s. Uh, you, you know, but, uh, all right. Last question. God, there's so many good ones today. John in Chicago says if Trump is, <laughs> if he becomes president and is convicted of any of his 91 indictments, how can the house of representatives not impeach him? Do you think that the Supreme court would rule on this? I think every Supreme court justice except Thomas would have to side with the constitution and not allow Trump to pardon himself. 
Wait, but the part of, of the question was on impeachment. What he's saying is, what John is saying is, if Trump is 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 elected president and he's been convicted of a crime, uh, right? You know, would the House of Representatives then impeach him, uh, and would the Supreme Court rule on this because he would try to uh, he would try to pardon himself? And uh, I don't know if there's ever that's ever been adjudicated. Yeah, boy, I. I just a lot if I was like a law student, you know, does impeachment require crime? I think the Constitution just says high crime does. misdemeanors. Uh, you know, you keep it, well, it has to be something related to his office. I, I, I don't know. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to ask around and, and get a better answer. But right now, a lot of shit's spinning through my head, but I, I just don't... Well, that. I'll make a commitment, James. You and I can. Uh, one of our guests on a show in the next couple of weeks is going to be Pam Carlin, the great Stanford law professor and former Justice Department yeah, official. The law dean, Yeah, and we can ask Pam. If, and Pam yeah, will give us... head of the whole ship. She'll give us the right, the right answer. Okay, keep those... Yeah, that's a good idea. Keep good those idea. questions coming because they are so good, and I apologize for the ones we don't get to. We'll try to get to them next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, Miracle Made, and Lomi in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find other shows you might enjoy in the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.